you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the book of Zechariah, specifically in chapter 9, verse 9. If this is your first time using or opening a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible of your own, we do provide uh, black hardcover Bibles um, in front of you, in a seat in front of you. And if you're using those Bibles, it will be in page 845. That is page 845. Give you a brief moment to turn there. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, which is the translation in the seats in front of you. And it says this. Listen to God's word. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, open up our eyes to see um, the meaning of this passage, a passage that uh, your people have been hung up on for many centuries, for a very long time, help us to see the true meaning of it, help us to see Christ in it, that he is, in fact, our life, our peace, our joy, our all in all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I really didn't want to do an intro involving sports for obvious reasons. I felt like, man, that is just way too obvious but here we are. Have you ever been to a live sports event? Like not just, not to undermine like high school or middle school sports, but like a live professional sporting event. Um, Would you say it was different than watching it on a television set? You may have like a home theater system with surround sound and like 120 foot screens, but it's just so different watching it live. Even if you're in the cheapest seats available. Like, I, my first ever and only live NBA game was the Portland Trailblazers when we were living out there. And we sat in the cheapest seats possible. Be, and we knew that because there were no seats behind us. Like, we were the very uh, top of the, of the stadium. But it was still um, magnetic. It was infectious, like, just the energy in the room. The biggest, um, I guess, culture shock for me was as soon as the tip-off happens, there's no commentators. I didn't know, like, the commentator was just something that came through the TV and not in um, the live event. But I do have a friend who was a, um, he was a church planner in Croatia, and he was there during the 2018 World Cup. Now, I don't know if your memory goes that far, but during the semifinals, in their victory over Brazil, the, the, the national team of Brazil, their cheering got so loud that local um, seismologists registered earthquakes during their victory over Brazil. It was that insane for them to win over the Brazilian national team. What this tells me is that people love to rejoice, whether it's spontaneous rejoicing or looking for something to rejoice in. That's just something that comes natural to people. And in our passage this evening, God, through the prophet Zechariah, is calling his people, God's people, to rejoice in something specific. And that's the main idea for this evening. It is that we will rejoice greatly in the humble king. Rejoice greatly in the humble king. And um, if 
I guess like a more uh, all-encompassing main idea here is rejoice in the humble king by embracing his upside-down kingdom. Rejoice in the humble king by embracing his upside-down kingdom. Um, there's no real clear main points to this. I'm just going to kind of go down the line here. Um, we do this by first looking at this king. Uh, Zechariah says, specifically, your king, your king is coming to you. You see, this part of the history of God's people, we find them in a very, in a tall, in the tail end of a long decline in their history. They're in a very low point and just, just been far removed from their original promise of being God's chosen people, an example to all the other nations. We can trace the beginning of this decline in actually 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 7. And as part of the story, it says that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But a thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This sees the beginning of the reign of King Saul. And this is actually 500 years before the time of Zechariah. And he reigns for 40 years, about 40 years. After him, we have King David, who reigns for about 39 years. And after David, his son Solomon, who reigns for about 40 years. And then in the next 400 years or so, we just see the kingdom split um, in half. We see um, the, the northern half exiled into Assyria, and then later on the lower half of the kingdom exiled into Babylon. And this is actually where uh, Zechariah is coming from. They're immediately coming off the heels of their exile in Babylon. And even Babylon was um, overthrown by Persia. And so now there's like this change of regime over uh, God's people. And it is to these people that this king is coming to. This king is described as being righteous and victorious, in some translations, just and bringing salvation, which is ironic and poetic in some ways because we see that the, the demise of um, this nation came when they sought a king that, that was like the other nations. They wanted a king for themselves. It was like the other nations. And here we see that their salvation and victory lies in the king that God would send them, not in the king of their choosing, but the king of God's choosing. And this king will be unlike all the other kings of old, whether domestic or foreign. He's humble and riding on a donkey. This is one of the, this, this passage in Zechariah is actually quoted in two other uh, places in the Bible, in both the book of Matthew and John. And this is the one key phrase that they all share together, is the fact that he's humble and he's riding on a donkey. So again, God's people at this point, they're, barely a shadow of their former glory. Their city walls and the majestic temple that Solomon built, they're all in ruins. They've been subjected under the rule of various foreign nations and regimes. They, as a people, as a whole, have been brought low. And now their king, their coming king, is described as somebody who is lowly and humble. It's a peculiar description for a king. And this is where we begin to catch a glimpse of God's planned upside down kingdom. It's not a kingdom like we've come to expect or we even see from all the other nations an example in the Bible, but it's an upside down kingdom. One way we see this is 
um, kind of this, this descriptor of this king who is riding on a donkey, uh, basically to answer the question, how do you know that's him? How do you know that that's the king that is coming that's been promised in Zechariah? One Jewish historian puts it this way, that um, in the Talmud, in one of their, their core um, literature, um, when they read these words, it haunted them. It's like, what does that mean? Like, what do you mean a donkey? Um, and so every time they would see, like, they would, whenever they would see a donkey or an animal, it would always, like, have this image of salvation in them. But it was bizarre and strange. And it was one of those weird things where it's like, if anyone else wanted to be, wanted to be like an imposter and pretend to be the king, all they would have had to done was ride on a donkey. But the fact that not a single person has done that or attempted to do that is actually proof of how ridiculous of a statement it is for a king to ride on a donkey. Like not even an imposter would attempt to ride a donkey. It's like, that is way too low of a stature for somebody um, to accommodate. So how does God fulfill this promise? He fulfills this promise of sending a king who is humble, righteous, and just, riding on a donkey by sending his own son, the king of an upside-down kingdom, truly righteous and victorious, yet also lowly, humble, and gentle. So if you're not a Christian and you're here with us today, we're so thankful you're here. We're so glad you're here. There's a thousand other things. There's one big thing you could be doing right now on a Sunday evening, and yet you're here with us. So whether you're brought here by a friend or a loved one, we're just so thankful that the Lord has brought you here. And if there's one thing we want you to know, there is a bad news and a good news. The bad news is we live in a fallen world because we have decided to live for ourselves, to rule over our own lives against a just and righteous God. And because of that, we deserve his just and righteous punishment as his enemies for our rebellion. This is what the Bible calls sin. And because God is righteous and just, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. So here's the good news. God sends his only son, Jesus, to live the perfect life of a citizen of God's upside down kingdom. Whatever that looks like, that radical upside down life, Jesus lives perfectly. See, riding on a donkey is but a shadow of the true condescension that took place when Jesus came down to take on human nature and save sinners from their sin, to take the place of sinners. Riding the donkey was not the big deal. The bigger deal was that God became man. And here's where, here's the call of the good news. You too may enter into this kingdom if you would only relinquish your own rule over your life and place your faith in the only one who rules with perfect righteousness. There's so many things you can place your faith in, but only Jesus can you fully rely on to rule over your life in perfect righteousness and justice. Here's the main application. It's right there in the verse. Rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly with no bounds to your rejoicing. And the only way we can do this as Christians is the more we embrace our identity as people of God's upside down kingdom, the more you embrace your identity as people of God's upside, upside down kingdom, the greater your rejoicing will be. So the opposite is also true. If you reject that identity of being a part of an upside down kingdom, you will struggle to rejoice in what God is calling us to rejoice in. That's namely this humble donkey riding king. What are some of the things that make it difficult for you to rejoice in this king? 
do we take ourselves too seriously? Like, can't possibly be identified as this king, with, with this king riding on a donkey? Taking ourselves too seriously, forgetting how our own king was brought low? Do we want the world to take us more seriously? Whether it's getting more degrees or becoming more successful, having this, this pomp of professionalism. Are we anxious that we're not living a life that meets the world's standards, the standards of success? Are we in this weird way trying to live in both worlds? Another way we could kind of diagnose this is how do you respond to trials? Do you recognize that your trials are inevitable, inevitable in our lives? Like there's no way to avoid trials, but so is the coming king. The coming king is inevitable. And between the two, which is the greater reality in our minds? Which one is the more pervasive thought that dictates how you live, how you speak, how you feel? Are we doing the hard work of preparing our hearts even now for suffering, for trials? Which is, again, we know to be true, to be certain. Or we often find ourselves caught off guard by our trial, living with the assumption that, you know, things normally typically should go our way. Personal conf confession comes here. Um, I, I kind of recognize in myself that in terms of rejoicing, I find myself rejoicing more when the trial is over, when there's a resolution to the trial rather than actually rejoicing in the trial in my king. And that's just me. Are we as quick to rejoice with others as we are to grumble with others? See, as God's people, we have plenty of opportunity to rejoice greatly. Both individually and corporately. So many like small moments that you rejoice in uh, of just God's evidence of faithfulness in your life. And I think one, one small step we could take is to invite others to rejoice with us. Just share those reasons for rejoicing with others and just see your rejoicing multiply and just expand greatly. You can also maximize the means of grace that God has provided for us. See those as a channel of rejoicing. And when we gather together on a Sunday morning, we gather rejoicing in this king. When we sing, we sing to rejoice in this humble king. And even the Lord's Supper, we rejoice in the fact that we are invited to the table because of our faith in Christ, because of Christ's finished work on our behalf. So in conclusion, It's easy for the world to rejoice in what it considers great. And by doing so, it will naturally consider us Christians to be foolish. But one day, our king will pull the curtain on creation. He will come again, and he will show the world what true greatness is. On that day, it will be plain for all to see that what we rejoice in as Christians is the only one worth rejoicing in. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that by faith, we have made him our treasure. That by faith of you revealing him to us and his worth and his greatness, we are able to count this life as loss. Father, help us to grow in our trust in you, 
and our understanding and our embracing of this upside down kingdom that we have now become a part of through faith so that our rejoicing may also be great. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.